Welcome to the Farcast, bringing you insights into Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We're halfway through the month of January, January the 18th. So goes January. So goes the year, as the old market saw. Actually, they even upped it, I think it was about 20 years ago, and said, as, as goes the first week of January, so goes the year. And then there are a lot of other indicators, like uh, whether you know the AFL or the NFL would win the Super Bowl. Now that we don't really have those anymore, we have to figure out who the AFL was. And then figure that out, and then we can predict how the stock market really Really, that's how we're going to invest trillions of dollars in this country about really which which uh, uh, conference wins the Super Bowl? Great. I don't think so. What we are seeing, folks, is a very benign start to markets. Earnings are coming in pretty strong. Lots of them are beating. Lots of them are beating. Not many disappointments. We got through bank earnings kind of unscathed, really. We didn't see the big write downs. We didn't see there was a bit of waffling on some of the bank prices, but overall, pretty good. Even Goldman Sachs, pretty good. I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal this week about those earnings. Uh, it was uh, it was a terrific article actually uh, in the Wall Street Journal uh, about uh, about Goldman Sachs earnings. But they skated by, and uh, David Solomon uh, it seems to be being forgiven, if you will for his foray into consumer banking uh, that didn't work and that cost him a lot of money. I'm surprised he kept his job over that. That's not a forgiving crowd over there. 10-year Treasury is 408 here this morning. Those yields are a bit higher. There have been some expectations that the Fed would have lower, uh, uh, ha have a lower, slower rate of cuts for the year. We'll see. Uh, uh, probably, I guess, cut this year. I think later in the year, and I don't think you're going to like it when they start cutting. This soft landing is a great idea, but damn, it's going to be really hard to get through this without a little bit of pain. Far as opinion and experience, $72 a barrel in oil. The dollar has rallied back a bit stronger. So what does all this mean? It means that we still have 5.3% in money market. It still means that we have over $8 trillion dollars. Wall Street Journal this morning, $8 trillion in money market funds. And bulls are saying, boy, that money's got to come back. And you talk to the owners of those money market funds, lots of very average folks who have saved their money who say, I'm not going to put my money into the stock market or anywhere else at risk if I can earn over 5% sitting in money market or earn 5% in a CD for seven months at my bank. I'm going to do that. Why? because inflation is three and a half percent. And as long as I can earn a better positive rate than inflation, I'm going to do that in basically what they consider to be a risk-free environment. What do you do? How do you invest? Is this going to be a good year or not? Kenny Polcari can tell us. Kenny tells us everything. When we want to know anything, we go to Kenny Polcari. He's a, a head of Case Capital Advisors. He is the chief market strategist for Slatestone, and the voice and face of Fox Television. Move over, Maria. Welcome back, Kenny. Oh, thank you. 
You're killing me. You are just killing me. Michael, welcome back. Thank you very much. Welcome to you. That was a great intro. Uh, I think you hit every nail on the head. And I think it provides uh, the platform for actually a great conversation today on uh, on the forecast, something I always look forward to uh, Thank you. with you. Thank you. Well, we look forward to it, too. Uh, we're happy about your career on Fox. It seems to be going really well. He, he he just starts to laugh and shake his head every time I say that, ladies and gentlemen. So that means I'm going to keep saying it. All right, <laughs> Kenny, Kenny, uh, tell us. Uh, we had a great year last year. Things look like they're going to just continue this year, not a big beginning or an end uh, as of December 31st or January 1st. So stocks continuing to do what they do. NASDAQ's up over 100 points this morning while S&P and Dow are flat. I didn't see why, and I didn't hear on CNBC why the NASDAQ's going nuts today. Why? Uh, uh, partly because I just think it's kind of a short-term oversold bounce. I don't think this kind of correction and refocus uh, is uh, on earnings now is going to change the narrative. I think that you know we've had we've had kind of a difficult start to the year. We, we finally, I think, and I put it in my note this morning, this acceptance that, you know, the, the Fed is not going to slash and burn rates. Um, and so markets are going to have to deal with that. And so I think uh, some of the fluff has been taken out since the first of the year. Uh, and now people are just looking for some short-term opportunity. I still think we've got some volatility, at least in the first quarter ahead of us. So I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, this is the bottom. Let's jump in. I want to see how the market reacts. But one way or the other, I don't think it's a disaster. I mean, look, since the first of the year, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ are just down 1%. It's the small caps that were getting smoked down 5.6%. Uh, and the transport's down 4 When do you buy those small caps, Kenny? When do you buy them? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're supposed to buy stuff when it's getting beaten up. Small caps had a, a, a for crap year last year. Uh, well, they're still going down this year. I mean, there's a point in here, isn't there, in an economic cycle when you buy small they, caps? There's definitely a point in the economic cycle. But look, remember, small caps rallied 27% from, from the low of October until December 31st. Uh, last year, right? They had this massive run on this idea that the Fed was going to slash and burn rates, which I think now people realize, oh, they're certainly not going to do that. Um, so you have to kind of look at the, you kind of have to look at where the small and mid caps are. I think it's getting to a level, uh, you know, it's long-term uh, trend line on the IWM, which is really a, a small cap ETF, is down at 182, right? We're at 189 right now. I think anywhere in here, uh, is where you might want to start to pick away because I do expect that it's going to hold it uh, at 182 because I don't think the U.S. economy is falling off the edge. I think the idea that the Fed is holding rates higher for longer now just means that you know they want to make sure they've killed inflation. I don't think it's a I don't think that suggests that it's a negative economic story. So I think that small caps should actually start to find some footing in here. So I would be I would be selectively adding uh, right in here because we've pulled back from the high. That created last, you know, last eight weeks of last year, uh, and we're about to test trendline support. Anxiety coming into some of these Fed meetings, I think, Kenny. If some of the Fed governors, Waller and others, have been saying, "Yeah, no, maybe there is even another rate hike in our future," I don't buy that, but I do believe they're changing the narrative. You know, I give a speech. I've been fortunate to be invited to give a speech every year at University of Delaware uh, with various Federal Reserve presidents this year uh, on the 22nd of February. So basically about a month from today, I'll be giving a speech with uh, President Pat Harker, head of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. I've gotten to know Pat. I've known Pat for 15, 20 years. 
like him so much. He's so smart, such a good guy. He used to be president of University of Delaware. And yeah. uh, uh, he and I have a lot of side moments over in the corner, quiet, where we can chat and I get to say, so tell me. And there are times when he will tell me and then tell me I have to shut up. Or <laughs> uh, other times he'll tell me, uh, I can't tell you that. And then and he rolls his eyes and nods and winks. So I always learn something. And and that'll be an important forecast when we come back uh, that following week uh, as I report on all of those things. And then the next day, I do that one evening on the 22nd. I've got to get the next morning on a, a eight o'clock flight to fly to Miami to give uh, this basically the same speech at the World Economic Forum for an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization or World Presidents Organization out of Miami. They've been very kind to invite me back uh, for a number of years too. I was a member uh, back when I was young, Kenny, of Young Presidents yeah. Organization. When we were young. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, folks have said, Kenny, we shouldn't, we, we spend too much time on the Fed. Why do investors, why do investors uh, spend so much time and focus on the Fed? Well, listen, they're spending time on the Fed now just because of where we were, where we are, what happened in between. The Fed was really, uh, uh, you know, either credited or blamed uh, for keeping rates too low for too long, which ignited, uh, along with administration spend and uh, spend policies, uh, which ignited, you know, inflation like we haven't seen in 40 so years. So what does so this cost of capital control. have to do with our stock price expectation? They change the cost of capital. They change Correct. the cost of money. And then we change our investments based on what they're telling us they're going to do next and the cost of money. Why is the cost of money so important to these stock prices? Well, listen, the cost of money is important to some stock prices. I don't think it's important to all stock prices. I don't necessarily think, as far as I'm concerned, in my portfolios, the cost of money is going to affect names like your big mega, mega cap companies. It will, though, affect, you know, kind of the SMIDs, right? The small mid cap names that we talked about or some of these growth stocks that- um, And the tech companies, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. That that depend on the cost of capital to run their businesses, right? I don't think Apple's worried about the cost of capital. I think- <laughs> Coca-Cola or Johnson & Johnson are either. But you do but have to you know what, Kenny, You know, with $8 trillion in money market, a lot of investors are concerned about the return on capital. So Correct. if they cut those rates, if you take rates back to 3.5%, how many people are come spilling out of that money market and say, well, I'd rather own Johnson & Johnson with a 3.5% dividend? That's not a recommendation, ladies and gentlemen, to buy or sell any security. That's just right. an example of a blue chip stock but with a larger dividend. But I mean, that's true. And that's exactly true. And that's why, you know, we'll talk about utilities in that same in that same line of thinking. Utilities are great dividend payers. They're not sexy. They're not exciting, but they're consistent dividend payers. Um, and so if we see rates come down and we saw it, you know, last year at the end of the year when they started talking about these these uh, multiple rate cuts, you saw utilities, which had been under pressure uh, most of the year, uh, now start to rally back. And so it will. Right. If you see rates uh, coming down and people cannot get five and a quarter or five percent on on money markets anymore, then they will start to dip their feet in. But I think they'll be I think what they need to do is is know where they're dipping their feet in and 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 stay in the best of class in the sectors you want to be in. Because I do think that this year could be uh, volatile with the not only the election, but with you know still lack of clarity around what the Fed is going to do that you need Goldman to Goldman kind of Sachs like thinks it. that they're going to have a six to basically six to ten percent return for stocks this year. Uh, you know, I also talked to a, a CEO 
Uh, Joe Nolan. Joe Nolan is CEO of Eversource Energy. It's a big New England utility. Yeah. And we were saying, I said, so tell me about utilities this year. And he said, I don't know. You tell me what rates are going to do, and I'll tell you what utilities are going to do. That's it, Michael. That's it. Right. On, you tell me oh, what rates are going to do, and agreed. I'll tell you what you... They're going to go down. Utilities will go up. There you go. That's right. That's right. And that's exactly what we start again. That's what you started to see at the end of the year last year in terms of what the conversation was. And suddenly the small caps lifted their head. NASDAQ lifted its head again. Utilities lifted their head. Um, but if we if they get into that story again, that uh, that um, rates are going to stay higher or potentially could go up one more time before they go down, then you'll continue to see pressure on those sectors. How do you feel as a long-term investor as you're looking at this now, Kenny? We're still near all-time highs on stocks. Are you putting new money to work here today? Uh, I've got clients who have, have said, no, we need to just go ahead and get the money to work now. They're kind of throwing in the towel. They're starting to say, uncle, people who have been holding on to cash, waiting for that big pullback that hasn't come, 2023 you know, moved us uh, and we're okay to do that. So tell me what you're thinking, Kenny. So yes, yes. And in fact, we continue as an asset manager and a wealth manager, like you know, you're always looking for opportunities and you are putting money to work strategically. You're not taking it all on day one and investing it all right across the board. You're being strategic. You're allocating 10 or 15 or maybe 20% of the available assets to be invested. And then you're investing it strategically. Then you wait, you see how the market reacts, whether it's another week, whether it's another month, uh, whether it's we get through earnings season or after the Fed meeting and you get more clarity, then you put more to work. But yes, to your point, a lot of clients that, uh, that I talk to every day want to be in the market you know, they naturally, no one wants to lose money, but they understand if they're in the best names in the sectors they want to be in, that's just part of the ride, right? As long as the fundamental story is strong and it doesn't change, then, you know, when stocks go on sale, it represents an opportunity to add to a position and, and build a portfolio. What's worrying you most right now about markets? I mean, one thing I'm thinking about is complacency, that investors are saying we should just go in because there haven't been any big dips lately. And therefore, I can I'm now feel good about owning stocks because I can own them for the long time. And maybe I don't go up very much, but I can just wait this out. Well, they haven't had they haven't been slapped uh, upside the head by the markets right. in a while. Right. So I'm a little worried about complacency. Where do you see risks out there, Kenny? And we're going to have to go. And so, yes, I agree with you on the complacency thing. But I think the risks that I see at the moment are twofold. I think it's always going to be around uh, the lack of clarity or, until we get more clarity. But I also think it's going to be around this presidential election season and what happens. And should something happen to Biden before the election, what happens You know, to uh, Kamala steps up and then what happens to the election and all the chaos that that could create. But look, remember, the political issues create short-term chaos. They don't create long-term investment decisions. But if you ask me what concerns me, I am concerned that there is, you know, something going on. We haven't seen the president now in three weeks. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. That does raise some concern. At least a lot of clients I talk to keep asking me the question, what do you think? What do you think? What do you? And I think there's some issues there. I think that creates at least some short-term angst uh, and concern for the markets. Certainly a stable U.S. government. <laughs> it's very correct. Important. And when Correct. you get into instability and surprises, markets never like it. And That's we right. like strong leaders and we like to feel safe. And I think there's a large part of the world that likes a very stable U.S., that's good for that's good for business around the world, or it has been for a long time. Hmm? 
It is. It absolutely is. But look, we all see it. There's hot spots all around the globe, you know, right now. And they keep growing. You see, now there's even more conflict uh, kind of kind of brewing between Pakistan and Iran and Iran and some of the other uh, countries there in the Middle East. And so that just gives fear and caution and allows anxiety to build uh, that that's potentially going to implode. Right. Break my heart to like see one Iran having all these. Break my heart to see Iran having all these problems, Kenny. Geez, they're such nice guys over there. Come on, I I still don't understand why we the policies any any pro uh, Iranian policy in recent years has made no sense to me because they keep just right. jamming it back right. in our faces. I mean, everything. That's right. I'm uh, with you 100 percent on that. It just just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so uh, I'm hearing a reasonably optimistic Kenny Polkarian here, continuing yes. to be cautious, but continuing to be committed to stocks for the long term. What have, have I got it right? You've got it right. You've got it right. Long term, I am a bull. But, you know, like everybody and probably like you, there is some caution, you know, in at least this first quarter, maybe into the second quarter. But that's OK. It's OK to be cautious as long as, you know, you've allocated, you've done your homework, you know what you own, you know what the stories are and you've allocated that money properly. I think, you know, being in the market is the best place to be. Kenny Pokari is the chief market strategist for Slatestone Advisors. He is the CEO of Case Capital Advisors and my great dear friend for many years. Thank you, Kenny, very much. Thanks, Mike, for having me. See you next week. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, the Dr. Scholl Foundation, and our great brilliant friend. When we come back on The Farcast. Thank you for joining us this week on The Farcast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to The Farcast. Dan Mahaffey joins us now as he does every week, more or less. Now it's season seven here, The Farcast covering Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And Dan certainly helps us a lot with Washington and the world and the Washington part still has plenty going on, Dan, as does the world, getting busier, getting hotter. We were talking about that with Kenny Polkari, what's going on in the Middle East and how the world is beginning to boil. You know, the additional conflicts around the world and overnight it was Palestine, uh, Pakistan uh, uh, attacking Iran uh, because they were saying that there were uh, rebel groups and terrorist organizations within these things and finding excuses to do this. And we've got Houthi rebels, uh, of course, uh, attacking ships in the Red Sea. And all of these things seem to be increasing. Um, and uh, politically, folks are beginning to say, oh, well, you see, that's this unstable Biden government. Uh, people don't worry about Biden too much. And it's another shot. And we can now politicize the extra military activity around the world. I wasn't going to start there, Dan, but it, it just occurred to me I should. That's uh -huh. where we left with Kenny Polkari. So certainly, yeah, I did not. Have, uh, yeah. Shout out to anyone who had Iran Pakistan skirmishes on their 2024 bingo card. You, you've yeah, done really, well. That wasn't there. Hitting, wasn't. The, hitting the rare square. Uh, look, the. This comes down to voter perception. We've talked about it on gasoline prices. We've talked about it on the economy. It also happens on foreign affairs, where the the, the average voter thinks that the president has uh, mystical near Avengers super-like uh, power 
over international events and that if, if the United States is a superpower, why can't we be uh, responding or handling all of this uh, while simultaneously I think, that, I think their point is, though, if they were intimidated, if Joe Biden were a strong, intimidating president, these people would not they would not dare uh, to start these conflicts for fear of what the United States might do, either economically or militarily. Is that fair or not fair? I think that's also a question of perceptions of what U.S. power is right now. Look, the, the Biden administration uh, is trying to do this in a way that is not adding gasoline to a fire and trying to tamp down the prospect of a wider conflict as opposed to catering to those who might want to uh, certainly try and expand it or or make it worse. So the the Houthis, we as we discussed last time, the the Saudis spent years trying to get the Houthis out of Yemen with airstrikes and other things. It's not a ragtag group that you're suddenly going to to sweep away. Uh, but ultimately, the the perception of who is behind the the desk around the world, I don't think it has so much to do with the the president as the sense of no matter who is in the Oval Office, the United States is just too distracted at home and too outdated and and small in some ways militarily to handle crises in Europe, the Middle East, South Asia, and around Taiwan and China. The U.S. seems to be giving lip service to this idea of the humanitarian cause in Pakistan, I mean, I'm sorry, in Palestine, uh, while supporting actually um, behind the scenes exactly what Israel's doing to go in and stomp out Hamas, let them do it, let them take the heat for all of the humanitarian concerns, but let's overall get rid of Hamas and Israel doesn't want them anyway, so let's just go with that. Am I getting that wrong? Because, boy, every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm not seeing the actions to back up any of the words from the United States. It, it, it seems like window dressing. No, certainly. Well, one part is that Congress uh, still has strong support for Israel, but the, the patience behind the scenes with the way the Israelis are prosecuting the war uh, has run out, if not long already run out. The That said, oh, though, the, yeah, the, the, the way U.S. military advisors had, had approached the Israelis early on, you know, comments here, too, about the you know, the if you if you look at the military campaign, yes, they've killed uh, killed Hamas leaders, but uh, the military campaign hasn't really rescued any hostages either. The negotiations and diplomacy and truce handled that earlier, but militarily, no hostages have been rescued in in any operation. So that question Is that of, really uh, a priority isn't the, isn't the greater priority. I mean, I understand we're giving a lot of lip service to the hostages, but job number one seems wipe out these suckers in Hamas, and it doesn't matter who else we take down when we do it, those bad guys are going to go. That's the message, isn't it? That's the message from the Netanyahu government, and again, one that Washington is, start, again, you read between the lines, far more comfortable, excuse me, far more uncomfortable with day by day, uh, and behind the scenes, the, the patience has run out on a lot of the military approaches the Israelis are using. Uh, the anti-Semitism around the world still is stunning to me, Dan. I've, I've never understood it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why it's tolerable. It, it, it's just mind-boggling. There's nothing tolerable about it, and you have to split the Jewish people from the actions of the Israeli government, but uh, disinformation and, and hucksters and bigoted people have uh, blurred that line. It's a very strange feeling. It's happened to me a few times when I've been traveling uh, around the world, and I look very American. I know I look very American, and uh, I get and I'll get singled out saying, you know, the problem with you Americans, 
And I think the problem with me, Americans, me, I mean, I'm now, you're, you, you're speaking to me and addressing me as the symbol of America? You got to be kidding me. I mean, uh, I mean, come on. I'm Joe Schmo. Uh, this is America. I'm don't, I don't government. I don't do this. I don't do that. I think it's a very strange feeling when you are singled out for what you look like or are perceived to be or your religion or any of those things. Um, and folks, uh, use your minds and use your hearts and understand, please, uh, there are the, we're, we're talking about our fellow human beings on this planet. When I was in the Soviet Union, and after all of the years of the Soviet Union, and, and the anxiety and the strife and the conflict, when I went over there and these people had me to their homes and cooked for me uh, and gave me uh, you know, a glass of wine and introduced me to their grandmothers, these are just some wonderful people. I understand their politics, but Dan's mm -hmm. point we have to separate the people from the politics and understand we are talking about people. And and we hope that others afford us the same <laughs> consideration. Dan, in Washington, things seem to have sta stalled with the budget. The best it looks like we're going to get is kick it down the road, kick it down the road, kick it down the road. But as you kick it down the road and Mike Johnson keeps his job, there aren't any funds for Ukraine. Israel probably going to be fine, but Ukraine won't. What happens here? Does this get resolved? And is there real is there a real solution out there that can solve Ukraine's uh, vital problem? I'm going to push back there. I still think Israel is tied up to Ukraine right now because the only legislative package that's actually written and moving is that Senate bill, which uh, combines some work on the border, uh, border efforts, negotiations. They're still ongoing, but that combines that with Ukraine uh, and Israel aid as well, some to, to Taiwan. Uh, what we see right now is I think the the Senate is going to try and jam the speaker with their package. They're going to move it. They're going to pass it. Certainly not popular among the House. There's many in the House who would say we're the more uh, indicative of where the Republican grassroots are in, in our opinion and feelings on this. So Johnson's in a very precarious position. Uh, look, they're using the term, as you say, on the budget. Uh, Stopgap sounds a lot nicer than kicking the can down the road. But that's what they're doing to to buy themselves more time because, uh, look, they haven't negotiated too much on the budget plan, although they have that now in place. And Johnson appears to not be uh, pulling back from that. So we're there. You see the I mean, the is the House just seeing this as the as the Chuck Schumer uh a Chuck Schumer uh, deal here. Yeah, they're going to see it as the Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell deal. And this is where Johnson has to make some choices that come down to uh, him. Now we've seen can his McConnell tone sell it in the House. I don't think McConnell can sell it in the House. Okay, so this is a this is a problem. Can okay, could God sell it in the House? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. Yeah, are these people going to say no, no matter what? I don't mean to to be sacrificed. There will be a certain element of this, but that's when Johnson realizes he again has to uh, rely on Democratic votes to get legislation passed. He does it like we've done past budget and CR deals, but all this does is encourage the others to uh, to kick him out. That said, that vote, that motion to vacate vote, if that is raised again. There is more chatter about whether some Democrats would protect Johnson if he holds to these deals. So there's chatter about that, which wasn't there for McCarthy. 
that some moderate Democrats would stick their necks out to to protect him, as it were, if he does hold to these deals that have been made with the Senate and administration. Uh, That was not a luxury afforded to to McCarthy, because as soon as McCarthy started the Biden impeachment and released the January 6th tapes, everyone said, we can't support McCarthy anymore because of that. that. That crossed the line. With Johnson, there's chatter that Democrats would protect him if he does move on some of these hard votes to bring in Democrats. Uh, it, should he then need Democratic protection if they try to vacate him? That said, despite despite the bomb throwers who want to talk about motion to vacate, there's still no one to take the job after that. And that shuts down everything again. And they don't want to do that. Even the the worst of them, I don't think, want to do that uh, in an election year. Les Munson last week was explaining that Johnson just basically didn't have as many enemies um, as Kevin McCarthy. And therefore, he was able to keep his job longer than McCarthy because people just hated McCarthy for so long. It didn't matter what McCarthy was going to say. There was enough animus there that uh, wounded scorched earth that that they would say no to anything he said and johnson didn't have that problem didn't have that baggage so that was that was kind of interesting hearing from les on that all right uh we've had iowa dan uh 15 percent is that what you said 14 percent of republicans turned yeah, out between 15 14 percent of republicans turned out in the in the nasty weather that's all that's all yeah, that's 14, half of the half of the turnout you saw in 2016 for comparison, uh, and also that in the general election, the overall general election, Iowa's turnout is is roughly 75 percent. So in a, in a in wow, a so five times more well than actually in a general out. election. And remember, a general election would have both Republicans and Democrats voting. Uh, remind all our listeners, a caucus really isn't a vote. It's a gathering. It's one of the l- less democratic ways of electing people, despite the sense of the, the town hall nature of this. But we saw very low turnout. We saw uh, Trump only take about 50% of that. And look, this is where I think everyone can read s- read the numbers the way they want to in their heart. A lot of people will say, look, oh, that's the, I love Trump and I'm part of the MAGA movement. These numbers are great. He's close to 50%. That's resounding success. Uh, if I'm against Trump, I'm I'm holding on to this and saying, oh, look, there's still a window. There's there's perhaps another 50% against him. This is low turnout. Look, you can, you can shape those all the other, the ways you want. I will say this does show that there's still a very narrow uh, unlikely but narrow track for Haley if she performs well in New Hampshire uh, to try and gain momentum, but do not discount the ardor of the Trump base and those who support him. Uh, it is a very passionate base and it is not going anywhere. One of my favorite books, of course, that I've read over the years, and I read it many years ago, my father-in-law sent it to me and suggested I read it, When Wish Replaces Thought. When Wish Replaces Thought. And I see that a lot as I hear people talk about what they want to see politically. But on Super Tuesday, which is when we have how many uh, primaries uh, on the same day, Dan? I think roughly 20-something. I don't know the top the number yes, off the top of my head. 20-something. Yeah. So uh, th- that at the end of Super Tuesday, on, I believe it's March 5th, is there any way that Donald Trump is not going to be the nominee for the Republican Party? The 0.5% chance uh, of something right. else so happening. that answer's no. That answer's no, no matter what happens and no matter what momentum mathematically Nikki Haley picks up. And uh, is there any chance 
that Joe Biden's not going to be the nominee uh, for the Democrats. I put that at slightly higher just when you hear discussions of if something happened about his health. But right now, no. Electorally, there's a 100% chance because he's he's running basically unopposed. Unopposed. So uh, we're coming to that next election where people are trying to come up with a narrative that they like other than the one that is facing us. There's a narrative people want, and it's not the one that is based in true fact. Okay, but Michael, I have a full head of hair and weigh 190 pounds. I I I I understand now. If you haven't seen my friend Mahaffey, he is follically challenged, and he probably has a few more than 190 pounds on there. But in his mind, okay, he's going to hang on to that, and we're rooting for him, folks. Um, uh, it, it, you know, you, you throw in his IQ, and 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 it's it, it's not a bad package, la ladies out there. Just want to tell you. You throw in the IQ, it's not bad. I want to tell you, he's one of the nicest guys I know too. All right, that's my that's my ad for um, Mahaffey, uh, end of bachelorhood. If I needed a dating profile in the future, I'll I'll throw that on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. Well, I could actually come on and do a little cameo there for you. Okay, we gotta go, <laughs> Dan. We gotta go. Uh, are we uh, uh, as we careen, careen towards Biden, Trump? Yet again, yet again, uh, will Congress fall into line? Will they begin to be, be any more effective? Any if the once the election becomes clear, can we expect a more cooperative Congress? And how bad are things going to get in the Middle East uh, here before they start to settle down? I've got thirty seconds. Do both. Regarding Congress, I'll be quick. No. It's an election year. You're not going to see anything calming down until you get to the lame duck and Got they it. will want to go through uh, Middle East. Middle East always has the power to surprise us. I think tensions are growing there. I worry about it significantly. Significant worry. When we come back with Dan next week, we'll talk about that. Uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency Congress, the vice chairman of the Dr. Scholl Foundation, our great friend and political senior political analyst on the Farcast. Thank you so much. This is exciting. Coming up, we have a new guest, Dan, uh, Dana Peterson, uh, chief economist of the conference board. This is a big deal. The conference board is a big deal. Dana Peterson's a big deal. When we come back on the Farcast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the Farcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen, on the 18th day 
on the 18th day of January 2024. As I've said, not that bad a year. And we've gotten up close to those new, those old uh, all-time highs, some new all-time highs in different stocks and different indexes. Not bad for investors. My fear is complacency that because we haven't had anything big go wrong for investors, right? We haven't been slapped in a number of years. And so people begin to feel, begin to feel like, oh, well, I'll just invest and I'll stay that way and I can endure the ups and downs and I'll be fine. And they say that precisely at a time when the market's done very well and when they haven't had any downs. And then you go out and you slap them. You remember Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until I hit them. Well, uh, that's my worry about the sense of complacency. Uh, so we're going to try and figure this out as we do every week covering Wall Street, Washington, and the world, bringing you insiders from the whole range of different professions. But today we have a treat. Dana Peterson is the chief economist and center leader at the conference board. And the conference board's a big Washington policy. Uh, it's, it's really kind of a think tank. Uh, but it's a think tank that really involves a lot of corporate CEOs. We get the they get the insider scoop, uh, and and then you get Dana's analysis. Uh, she's an undergraduate degree in economics from Wesleyan, and her uh, master of science in economics from University of Wisconsin Madison. One of the smartest and also one of the nicest people you're ever going to see, I think in the financial media. And I, my advice to you is listen to Dana. So welcome, Dana Peterson, to the Farcast. Thanks so much, Michael. We're really glad you're here. Dana, what do you give, give us your base case for the U.S. economy for 2024? Uh, are we going to see things continue to grow? Do we have the recession that people are concerned about? Uh, do things get slow before the Fed? Do they really have to slow down for the Fed to ease? What happens? Well, I think this is going to be a complex year. We are looking at slower growth this year relative to last year. Why is that? A lot of the big supports for the consumer are probably going to fade, right? So all the excess savings from fiscal stimulus is going to go away. All those debts that people have been racking up from credit cards are going to come due. And also, we think there's going to be some more weakness in the labor market. Away from government, leisure, hospitality, and healthcare, there are no job gains out there. So we think that certainly we're going to see some more weakness in the labor market and all that will lead up into a consumer spending less and maybe a short and shallow recession over the second and third quarter. But we'll get out of it by the end of this year because we think the US economy still has a lot of momentum. Um, thinking about the Fed, yes, we think inflation's going to continue to slow. We'll get to 2% and the Fed will probably start cutting rates around June. We'll probably see one percentage point reduction in, in uh, the federal funds rate, which will also help the economy to recover towards the end of this year. So uh, you, you talk about the weakness in the labor market. Um, that's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because if you have a little bit weaker labor market, it means you don't have the same pressures for wage inflation. And wage inflation has been a pretty good driver uh, if, if you have to, of course, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, increase what you're paying the average Walmart worker. Walmart's not really going to take it out of their hide, out of their own personal Walmart hide or shareholders hide for too long. You're going to raise prices at Walmart. And that's how that inflation spiral begins. But a little bit weaker takes that off. But the flip side, of course, is you don't have those employees 
with a lot more money in their pocket to spend. So it seems like a difficult balance to try and reach, Dana. And yet we saw consumer spending for the holiday season up. Was that all inflation? They were buying the same amount of stuff, but they had to pay more for it. So the number looked better. I, I never know how to read that. Sure. Well, <laughs> we always look at retail sales and then uh, account for inflation. And even after accounting for inflation, you did have uh, quite a bit of spe of spending, real spending out there yes. among consumers. Um, but, you know, you asked about inflation. And when I think about what's driving inflation right now, it's not goods, right? So food and energy are not really causing prices to rise that much. Yes, they're elevated and people don't like that, but they're not picking up as fast as we saw. So most of the inflation is among services. A big chunk of that is the housing costs, right? And the good news is yep. that housing costs are not rising as fast as they were. And that's gonna get us a long way to getting back to 2%. But then you have everything else. And the everything else includes a lot of pressure from higher insurance costs, but also wages. And yes, wages are not rising as fast as they were overall, but you do have a number of sectors that are suffering from labor shortages. And where you can't find enough workers, companies are holding on to their workers, paying them more, and anyone that they do hire, they're paying them more as well. And that's going to continue to put upward pressure on the prices that consumers pay, because as you said, businesses are going to pass it right along to the customer. Before we start talking about, I want to ask you about some of these international situations and the, what it means for the U.S. economy and the world economy for the war in Ukraine and what's going on with the tariffs still against China, which uh, actually Joe Biden has strengthened over Donald Trump, has increased those tariffs. And then uh, in the Middle East, what this less stable Middle East means, we already see higher prices coming from the Red Sea and the ships that won't go through the Red Sea now and have to go around. Um, but before we get to the international situation, Dana, tell me about the domestic U.S. economy when we see that the deficit increased uh, by a half a trillion dollars in the fourth quarter, 34, 34 and a half trillion in U.S. debt, U.S. debt much larger than GDP. Reinhardt and Rogoff wrote that report years ago, suggesting that any time a debt equaled 100% of GDP growth across a number of years and a number of different economies, that it began to really squelch uh, any potential uh, GDP growth, actually trimmed about a point off of prospective GDP growth. When does the debt begin to be a problem? And are you concerned uh, about the trends of the US economy? Or can we just skate through this? I think we're already in a crisis regarding the fiscal situation in the U.S. Annual federal budget deficits are getting larger and larger. As you mentioned, uh, public debt is $34 trillion. And we saw that debt really skyrocket last year as the Fed raised interest rates to tackle inflation that also raised the cost of financing the debt. We call that net interest. So we're already in crisis mode. And if you go forward, we're going to have continued and greater spending on entitlements like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, right? But also a lot more debt service. So, um, you know, the key thing is, is that we need policymakers to be focused on this and policymakers also need to convince the American public that we need to make some changes. Now, some of these changes are not that dramatic. So, for example, asking the younger folks to invest in their retirements and not just rely on Social Security. 
um, making sure that you have a broader tax base, that you cut the fat in terms of, of spending. So all of these things are, and many more, are ways that we can address debt. But if we don't, absolutely, having outsized debt does weigh on the economy. So if you think about it, the more debt you have, the more the Treasury has to issue bonds to help finance past obligations. So if you're an investor and you have the choice between a U.S. Treasury, which is still you know pretty highly rated, and a high-yield corporate bond, you're probably going to go for that Treasury, right? So that means you don't have investments, money going towards private investment to corporations. So it weighs on overall GDP. Also, outsized debt can be inflationary because it ultimately raises the cost of capital. And if the cost of capital is higher, that means, again, businesses won't invest and consumers will also face higher costs for basic um, financing of goods and services. So, yes, outside debt is not a good thing for the U.S. economy. It's something that we're watching. It's something that certainly has worried me for years. Uh, and I don't know, uh, you know, I'm... I'm always write it off a little bit, Dan, and say, you know, maybe I'm getting to be one of these old curmudgeonly guys, you know, as my hair gets whiter. See, but uh, you're making me feel better because you're young and and uh, you sound as concerned as I am. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll take it off of my old grumpy guy uh, <laughs> list of things, list of things for now. All right. Uh, uh, moving on with my old grumpy guy uh, uh, issues, however, um, let's go around the world. Uh, I guess if you were going to ask me uh, the most significant concern I have right now, I'd still say China, without regard to what's going on in the Middle East, being the second largest economy in the world, that relationship in terms of the global economic fabric strikes me as still more important. What would your major concern be globally for the economy? How do you think about Ukraine, China, and then what's going on in the Middle East? Sure. Well, let's start with China. So China is a massive economy. It's the second largest economy in the world after the United States, but it's slowing dramatically. Last year, they grew by 5.2 percentage points. Yes, that was the government's target, but it was significantly slower than growth we've seen in the past. And this year, we think Chinese growth is going to ratchet down another one percentage point to 4.1 percent. And that's because Chinese consumers are very unhappy. Confidence is low, they're not spending, you don't have a social safety net, so they're engaging in what we call um, uh, protective savings. Uh, yeah. Well, basically you save money, that's the wrong term, <laughs> but you save money because there's no government that's gonna sweep in and save you. So um, that means there's not much spending. China's still experiencing a housing crisis. Meanwhile, China's big juggernaut, which is exports, is weak because global demand is weak. Um, especially in Europe, which is a major trading partner for China. So that's the economic issues with China are going to weigh on the global economy, but also the relationship between China and the U.S. It's antagonistic. They see each other as strategic competitors, and hence you have the tariffs um, on trade, and you also have a risk that there could be some conflagration if mainland China kind of absorbs Taiwan, and the U.S. response to that. We're gonna see massive interruptions in trade of goods, especially high-tech chips that go into everything that we, yeah. just about everything we use. So China, the relationship between the U.S. China is pivotal to whether or not we have really big disruptions in trade going forward. Now let's move on to the war in Ukraine. 
Um, so that's still ongoing. And the thing is that it, there doesn't seem to be any real solutions in sight for an end. However, we are seeing, we are continuing to see some effect from that, certainly on food prices. And that's main, the fact that, you know, Ukraine is part of the world's breadbasket and so is Russia. And these two economies are constrained in terms of how much food they can ship out to the rest of the world. So that's still causing global food prices to be elevated. And it's also feeding back somewhat to the US, although not as intensively. But that's the main effect that we see from the war in Ukraine on the US. I mean, certainly there are political issues with the um, ongoing negotiations for the budget for this year. A big question, two big questions about, about the border in the US and about funding for Ukraine. So it's mixing into the politics in Washington and affecting whether or not we're going to continue to support Ukraine um, as it resists Russia. Now, yep. let's talk about the Red Sea. So right now, the what we're seeing with the Houthi rebels attacking ships in, in the Red Sea is an outcropping from the war between Israel and Hamas, right? And really it's Iran and its affiliate uh, militants, if you will, in the Middle East that are working together to attack assets that are shipping products between Europe, MENA, and Asia. The interesting thing is that this is really going to, this is really a huge problem for Europe and India, and also the Middle Eastern economies, not so much for China, because you don't see Chinese ships getting attacked, but it's certainly weighing on trade and growth in certainly in Europe and among MENA economies. Now, the thing is that we don't really see much inflation. Yes, shipping costs have risen, but it's gonna take some time before you see it show up in the cost of goods. And most of the goods that are being shipped back and forth are high-tech goods and metals. Interestingly, um, energy is pretty low. Yeah. But all this is not really impacting the U.S. Why is that? Because the U.S. has other options. The U.S. has the benefit of the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. So it's not really disrupting uh, movement of products to the U.S. And it's also not really affecting U.S. energy because the U.S. is very much self-sufficient in energy and also has other options. So the key thing is whether or not this whole business metastasizes into a broader conflict that results in more disruptions in trade globally and also higher inflation as these products are being impacted. But for now, it seems like it's mostly contained for the U.S. economy, but certainly the fighting and the tensions are still ongoing. Ladies and gentlemen, aren't you glad we had her on? I mean, have, I always learn so much when I do this show every week, but I've learned a lot today. Uh, Dana, thank you. Let, let me just end back up on the U.S. if I can and get your final word on a GDP number and where you think the 10-year will close the end of the year. GDP for 2024 for the U.S. and where do you think we see 10-year rates by the end of the year? Well, we do have GDP growth of eight tenths this year. Again, um, well, actually, I think it's more like 1%, roughly 1%, let's just say that, because we do have this period of weakness, but then we kind of get out of it towards the end of the year. We don't have an exact number for the 10 year, but I would imagine it's going to probably rise somewhat more. Why? Because the Fed is engaging in quantitative tightening. So that's 
lifting the pressure that's been on the back end of the yield curve, right? And also you have the case that we could have further um, issues in the global economy that impact the US. But all in all, we are looking for some weakness in the short run, but strength later on. That sounds uh, that sounds terrific. One uh, percent doesn't sound terrific, actually. One percent GDP growth uh, sounds, uh, as 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 we used to say growing up, a lot like kissing your sister. Uh, it'll be fine, but you know you probably can do better. <laughs> you hope. Okay. Uh, anyway, one it's growth is growth. Uh, growth is growth, and we'll take what we can get. Dana Peterson is the chief economist, center leader of economy strategy and finance at the conference board. Uh, conference board is just a terrific source of information, and I think a uh, great advocate for all of its members. Um, and um, we're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for being on the Farcast. Thank you. That's it for another week, ladies and gentlemen, as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, trying to bring you the best experts and insight we can to help you think about your world and think about your investment portfolios and the economy. I get a little smarter every week. I hope you do too. For my producer, Harry Jennings, everybody at Farm Miller in Washington at Hightower Advisors, thank you for listening. Share us on your social media. We appreciate you being listeners week after week, your cards and your notes. I'll be back next week. Have a great weekend. For the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.